As you heard Alex read earlier, we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 3 and 4 this morning. I've been out of the pulpit the last couple of weeks, so thankful for faithful brothers like Ross Appleton, pastor of Christ Community Church, and Matthew Noble, our own pastoral assistant, faithfully expounding the Word to us. Now we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the seat backs in front of you. You can grab one of those. Isaiah is almost right dead smack in the middle of your Bible. You should be able to find it there pretty easily. Isaiah chapter 3. Sometimes... The very best thing that God can do for us is to take things away. Sometimes the very best thing that God can do for us is to take things away from us. Now, that's not how most of us think about our spiritual lives. That's not how most of us think about our own sanctification. In fact, if you were to dissect most of our prayers, you might discover that we think our sanctification, that is our progressing in the faith and becoming more holy and more happy, is actually best served by God giving us more things. Now, it's true that we should make our requests known before God, but I wonder how many of you, for the sake of your own holiness and your own happiness, have ever prayed, God, I ask that you would take away good things in my life if those good things would prevent me or distract me from hoping in and delighting in the better thing that is delighting in you. Oh, that's a dangerous prayer. I have to confess that that's not a prayer that I pray instinctively or very often. I've been conditioned to think that I just need a little bit more than what I have, a little bit more of the good life, and then I'll be holy and happy. But there are times in our lives, just like we do with our own children, or for any of us who have been children, there are times where we as parents, or that your own parents, have taken good things away from you, because that has been in your best interest. It doesn't seem like it in the moment. But it's always in your best interest. It's out of love. Sometimes, the best thing that God can do for us is to take things away. And that is really the big idea of our passage this morning, Isaiah 3 and 4. The big idea is this. It's my sermon in a sentence. If you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write this down. That way, if I call you at 3 o'clock in the morning and I say, what was the sermon all about? This is what you would tell me. God takes things away from us to give us more of Himself. God takes things away from us to give us more of Himself. It's a simple idea Really, really easy to preach about, <laughs> but really hard to live. But that's exactly where God has Jerusalem and Judah. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. We're at a point where the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
Israel is in the north. Judah and Jerusalem are in the south. And Isaiah has been given a prophetic ministry by God to the kingdom of Judah. That's who he's preaching to. And if you look all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, you see that it's during a specific time. He is preaching in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now that is significant. Right now in this portion of Isaiah's prophecy, which is really a string of prophecies collected throughout his whole prophetic ministry, he is preaching in the time of Uzziah. And the reason that's going to be significant, if you remember anything about it, is that Uzziah was a reluctant king. He wasn't even supposed to be king, at least not yet, not when he was enthroned. The northern king, Jeroboam, he was the second Jeroboam, he was a politically savvy guy. And he wanted to install a king in the southern kingdom and so encouraged the installation of Uzziah at the ripe old age of 16, thinking that if I can get a young guy on the throne, then I can do whatever I want. But if you go look in 2 Chronicles 25, we see that the Lord was with Uzziah, and the Lord caused him to prosper so that under his leadership, Israel grew in political might, says their fame spread all the way to Egypt, grew in technology, grew in military might and power, that everything seemed to flourish under Uzziah's leadership as God had blessed it. But there's a hinge statement right in 2 Corinthians 25 or 2 Chronicles 25, and it says, when Uzziah became great, he grew proud. He thought God's boundaries didn't apply to him anymore. And so he said, you know what? I'm not going to follow God's rules when it comes to approaching him in worship. I can approach him any way that we want. Oh, brothers and sisters, you realize, don't you, that for our own spiritual lives, prosperity can often be much more dangerous than pain. So, looking at his own prosperity, thinking that he's doing pretty well for himself, he decides that he can approach God any way that he wants. And so, he comes into the temple. Eighty-one priests, including the high priest, come against him. And even with 81 voices ringing in his ear, he will not listen to wise and godly counsel. He will continue to move forward. But yet, on the other side of those boundaries, the boundaries that Uzziah thought no longer applied to him is a holy God. And that holy God disciplined Uzziah by striking him on the forehead with leprosy and of banishing him to a house away from the throne and away from the public eye and away from, from all of his public responsibilities for the rest of his life. In fact, his epitaph on his throne, it says that when he died, they said he had leprosy. Uh, it's not just about starting well, it's about finishing well. Uzziah started really well, but he didn't finish real well. But in that time when Uzziah was removed by God from the throne because of his own disobedience. There appeared in Israel a gigantic vacuum of leadership. And Isaiah 3 and 4 is happening right in the context of that leadership vacuum. And you'll see why that's significant as we work our way through it. 
And what we're going to see things, or what we're going to see here, is really there's going to be two points. Our first point, Isaiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, is that God loves us by taking things away. God loves us by taking things away. We're going to see this in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, that God loves us by taking things away. And specifically, we're going to see two things that He takes away. In verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that God takes away false stability. And then in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, we're going to see that He takes away vain beauty. Let's just jump in at verse 1. Here we see God is going to take away false stability. For behold, the Lord God of hosts. Some of your Bibles say the Lord Almighty. This is the name that God would give himself. It's the name applied to God when he is the Lord of hosts fighting on behalf of his people. Well, now the very God who has fought for Judah, has fought for Jerusalem, is now coming against Judah and Jerusalem, and he's doing so by, see this, taking away. The Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. That word support and supply is one word in Hebrew. One is in the masculine sense and the other is in the feminine form. And the idea is that God is going to take away everything that stabilizes his people, beginning with their leaders. And so in verse 2, we see that the mighty man and the soldier... The judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, all of them are going to be removed. There's going to be nobody to look to for leadership. A leadership vacuum has been created. God's people flourish under godly leaders. We see this from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And those godly leaders are men who uphold a high view of God's word, not just in word, but in deed. That they have a concern for personal holiness in such a way that they lead the way. They not only lead the way in their concern for personal holiness, but godly leaders also lead the way in their own repenting. Godly leaders... They don't show partiality, but they're just in their judgments. They consider others more important than themselves. And in all of these things, they're primarily concerned with promoting God's glory over their own glory. When God's people have godly leaders, God's people flourish. But when godly leaders are missing, God's people flounder. Take a look at what fills this leadership vacuum in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we see unqualified and immature leaders step up. I will make boys their princes. And infants, well, they're going to rule over them. And under their leadership in verse 5, we're going to see an oppressive culture gets created. That the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Paul in Romans chapter 1 picks up on some of this language and he says all of this is evidence of a people being under God's judgment. And that's exactly what we see here. 
that they are under God's judgment. And it's evident that they're under God's judgment because what we see in verses 6 and 7 are men resisting leadership and avoiding responsibility. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And in that day, he will speak out saying, oh, listen, I'm not a ruler. In my house, there's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of a people. Notice there's three men, a man, his brother, and his father. And none of them want to take responsibility for others. Throughout the Bible, God has designed that men are to take the lead in their homes and among his people. And a sign of God's judgment is when men are presented with responsibility for others and they passively say, ah, no, anybody but me, please. Godly men become godly leaders by seeing needs and then taking the initiative to meet needs. Passive and selfish men shrink back and they think, oh man, I hope somebody other than me will do it. But when families and churches are characterized by godly men who eagerly and sacrificially take responsibility for others, families and churches flourish. But when families and churches are marked by passive men, selfishly refusing to take responsibility for others, well, then families and churches become unstable and even oppressive places. Some of you know this all too well from your own experiences, churches that you've been a part of in the past, or perhaps your own families. But nevertheless, it is God's design that men take responsibility for those around them. I'm really thankful for the number of ways that men in this church have done just that. I think about, for instance, my fellow elders. They don't get a dime from this church. They work full-time jobs. They have growing families. And yet they give of their own time and their own energy to pray and lead and shepherd and study and teach and disciple in the early mornings and late at night and over their lunch breaks As they see needs, they seek to meet needs, and they take initiative. They're not passive. And I am so thankful for Mark, and I'm thankful for Jono, and I'm thankful for our deacons like Matt and PJ, and the way that they see needs and meet needs. You talk to PJ, he would say he's the last person on the planet who's probably gifted to oversee a children's ministry. Now, our experience has been the exact opposite of that. He's done a wonderful job. But I remember when I approached him for the first time, he said, listen, I just want to serve the church. If this is a need that we have, I'm happy to serve any way that we have. That is the evidence of God's blessing on a church. And I pray that we have more and more men raising up like that. More and more men rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, seeing needs, and meeting needs. You know, one of the ways that we do this most practically is is through church membership. So next Sunday, we have the first of a couple membership classes. And those are really just entry points for helping perhaps some of you who are here, been gathering with us for a certain amount of time, trying to consider whether this is a place or a people 
that you'd want to remain with? Well, it's an entry point really to just going, let us explain how it is that we would take responsibility for you spiritually and how you and becoming a member of our church would take responsibility for others. At the very heart of church membership is is an intentional responsibility taken for the spiritual good of your brothers and sisters. That's why when you look at our church covenant, it is very others-oriented. It's not very me-centered. It recognizes that God has saved me and is sanctifying me, not ultimately for my own good, not ultimately for my own happiness, but so that I might be equipped by the power of His Spirit to help other brothers and sisters grow and flourish. That He wants to see an entire community of brothers and sisters seeing needs, meeting needs, engaging one another, and pursuing one another's spiritual good through discipleship. And men should be at the very front of the line in that. If you've been gathering with our church for any amount of time and we preach a gospel that you agree with and you go, I think these are people that I can walk with and help to disciple as they help to disciple me. Oh, then friend, you should lead your family well. Be among the first to sign up for these upcoming membership classes and find out how practically you might take responsibility for others. Of course, for those of us who are already members, Let us continue to find ways that we can get creative and brainstorm and dream about how we might be able to care for one another well. This should be a common topic in our discipleship. What does it look like to see needs? What needs are we seeing? And how might we go about meeting those needs? Oh, sisters, listen. The kind of husband that you want and the kind of husband that you pray for, whether you realize it or not, is the kind of man that will not only see and meet needs in your own home, but will see and meet needs among God's people. And those two are not opposed to one another. Ministry and marriage are not enemies. I find that more often than not, men who take the initiative to set themselves aside to see needs and meet needs among God's people are the men who are leading their families to flourish the most. There's always exceptions, depending on their motivations. But by and large, you want to see your spouse, your husband, growing in his initiative to take responsibilities for others, both in your home and among God's people. But here we've got passive leaders. They don't want any responsibility. They hope somebody else is going to do it. And what marks their words and their deeds is not ultimately a delight in God's glory. And it's certainly not a pursuing of the good of others. But no, in verses 8 through 11, it is a defying of God's glory. You see that? That they defy His glorious presence. You and I, we're often quick to blame things outside of us for our own sin. We're quick to blame things for why we can't take the kind of initiative to see and meet needs that, that God would have us see and that God would have us meet. We might blame the way that we talk and the way that we act on the people around us, on the families that He's given us, on our spouse, on our kids, on our neighbors, on our friends. We might even point to the culture that we live in. Oh, it's just corrupting everything. But our biggest problem is not outside of us. Our biggest problem is inside of us. My biggest problem is me. And the biggest problem with these men is them. Not anything outside of them. That's why why Isaiah says on behalf of God, 
that they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. They have brought it on themselves. They've got nobody to blame but themselves. But here in these handful of verses, we find the sum of the human experience. That either we delight in God's glorious presence or we defy his glorious presence. Everything in our lives hinges on this. Either we will defy God by seeking stability in the shifting sands of this world, our families and our jobs, perhaps our intellects and our health, our own reputation before men, or even perhaps our own government. Or we will delight in God by finding our stability in Him alone. C.H. Spurgeon said this, perfect stability belongs alone to God. He alone of all beings is without variableness, that is change, or shadow of turning. He is immutable, which is an old fancy word for unchangeable. He is immutable. He will not change. He is all wise. He need not change. And he is perfect. He cannot change. Brothers and sisters, God will take things away to destabilize your life so that you would seek your stability in Him alone. And this is the proof of His love for us. We see that in the following verses. Notice how many times in verses 12 through 15 you see the phrase, my people. You see it twice in verse 12. You see it again at the end of verse 14 or in the middle of verse 14. You see it again in verse 15. My people, my people, my people. This is covenantal language. Notice how it's coupled with capital L-O-R-D, Lord. That is translated Yahweh. That's the, that's the name that God gives himself. And it speaks to his covenant faithfulness. That he is a promise-making God and he is a promise-keeping God. These are my people. I have made promises. That is significant. Because even in discipline... God is protective of his people. That's why he says in verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor. He's turning his eyes back to the leaders. The tone of verse 15 is the same tone that, that perhaps a father would have when he walks into a room and sees an older sibling, an older and stronger sibling, beating down his younger sibling. He's going to look at him and go, what are you doing? And that's exactly the tone of verse 15, that even in discipline, God is protective of his people, that he is committed to their flourishing with a covenant love. That's why he calls them my people. And so he will judge Judah's selfish leaders, and he will raise up from Judah a servant leader. And this servant will be totally unlike the passive men of verses 6 and 7. Passive men... Say, I will not be a healer. But the servant says, I came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Passive men say, I have no bread. But the servant says, I am the bread of life. And that whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. No, passive men say, I have no cloak. But the servant says, I will give you robes that have been washed in my blood. You will be cloaked in my righteousness. 
Passive men say, you shall not make me a leader. But the servant says, I have come that my sheep may have life. And so that they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, that's leadership. No passivity, all initiative. No selfishness, all sacrificial love. Sees the need, rightly understands the need, and even meets the need at the expense of his own well-being and love, considering others more important than himself. That is a love worth trusting. And only a love like that can win us and woo us back to delighting in the glory of God's presence. Only the love of Christ. And so God is disciplining his people by creating a leadership vacuum. And into that vacuum will come corrupt and oppressive leaders. And he's doing so, so that they would know something. That to those whom God calls my people, Isaiah is saying, God may be disciplining you, but he is not done with you. And that is really good news. But in verses 16 and following, God is going to turn his attention away from the men of Judah. So you men, if you feel sufficiently beat up, Isaiah's done with you for now. And we're going to look at the ladies. Because in verses 16 and following, God's going to turn his attention away from the men of Judah to the women of Judah. So in verses 2 through 15, we saw God take away their false stability. They fell under God's judgment for, and that was evident in the passivity of of men failing to step up and lead. God took away their false sense of stability, but now he's going to take away their superficial vanity. We see this at beginning in verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. The daughters of Zion here are described as being haughty. That is, that they are self-absorbed and they are self-interested. And it says that they are glancing wantonly with their eyes. That word wantonly is the idea of being provocative and enticing. They're being really flirtatious. But not only that, but it says at the end of verse 16 that they're tinkling with their feet. They were, wa- they were wearing anklets that would make noise everywhere that they went. They loved drawing attention to themselves. Sisters, do a quick inventory on the daily desires of your heart. If you were given a choice between being profoundly godly or stunningly beautiful, what would you choose? I know the answer that many of you might give if you had to say it out loud, but I'm talking about in the hidden parts of your heart. What would you choose? The Apostle Peter writes this, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
by a gentle and quiet spirit, the Bible isn't commanding women to be meek and mousy. That's not what it's saying. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. And a gentle spirit is when your emotional power is not run amok, but it is brought under God's control for the good of others. It is a rejection of emotional manipulation, and it is an embracing of of your emotional life brought under the sovereign lordship of Christ in such a way that it always serves the good of others. That is a gentle spirit. It doesn't run amok over others but it seeks their good. But it's not just a gentle spirit, it's a quiet spirit. It carries the idea of being restrained or well-ordered. This is related to the fruit of self-control. A quiet spirit is when your desires are ordered around what God wants in any given moment, not what you want in any given moment. And those two things are not always the same, are they? So he says, have a gentle and a quiet spirit. Spirit. But here, what he's not saying is that godliness is frumpiness. He's saying that true beauty is godliness, it's God likeness, it's the fruit of God the Spirit. So, sisters, do you spend more time adorning your body with perishable gold or adorning your heart with imperishable godliness? Do you spend time obsessing? And dreaming and thinking over what's precious in the world's eyes? Or do you spend time obsessing and dreaming and scheming and thinking about what's precious in God's eyes? Because if your identity and your pride is in superficial vanity, then God is good to take it away. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, The headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Let me be really clear. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. Just like there's nothing inherently wrong with braided hair or a gold necklace. What Isaiah is getting to is the same thing that Peter was getting to, and that is the heart of the matter, the heart of motivations. What is motivating you behind these things? Is it that you want to be made much of, or do you want to see Christ made much of? Is it that you have a desire to to cultivate godliness, and that's controlling everything? Or do you have a desire... To be seen and known and loved and recognized and praised by others, even at the expense of the praise of God. God is good to take these things away from us when they become obstacles to our delighting ultimately in Him. Modesty, true beauty, is godliness. Now, I want to make a little sermon within a sermon. Some of you have been in churches where you've heard something like this. The goal of your modesty is to make sure that your brothers in Christ don't stumble. I'm going to argue that the goal of your modesty is not primarily that you don't cause other men to stumble. 
The goal of modesty is to glorify God and delight in Him. It is an orientation of your heart, not driven by the fear of those outside of you. It's an orientation of heart that is motivated and driven by a love for God and a delighting in God and a treasuring and a cherishing of His glory. Now, sisters, listen to me. When those things are motivating your heart, you will naturally think, how do I best serve the people around me? It's not lumping with false guilt. Men, you do not lust because of the women running around outside of you. That is your problem. Too much false guilt has been put on women for sin that belongs to you and I. We've got to put that sin to death by God's Spirit alone. But sisters, the best way for you to serve your brothers is not by operating in fear every time you get dressed or being motivated by protecting them merely. That is a motivation that cannot endure and will not last. Your motivation is God's glory of loving and enjoying and delighting in Him through your obedience to His Word. Oh, and as you do, you're going to find that you delight more and more of conducting yourself not just in how you dress, but in all ways, in a way that seeks the good of everyone around you, including your brothers in Christ. Pursue godliness. That is what Peter is getting at. If you think it's all about what clothes you wear, then you're missing the point. It is about godliness and the kind of godliness that can only be brought about by those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in Christ. Pursue godliness. Because otherwise, in verse 26, notice this, God is going to replace in His severe mercy the object of their pride with everything that they dread. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Anyone want to be bald? Better listen to Isaiah. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. What he's referring to here in context is the Assyrian invasion that's only a couple of decades away. And it's going to begin a series of onslaughts that will end in a Babylonian invasion uh, and the sacking of Jerusalem from 720 all the way to 587 BC. So they're about to undergo 140 years worth of oppression by enemies outside of them. And they are nations that God is sovereignly bringing to discipline his people as they're taken away into, into captivity. But what he's saying in verse 24 is that these wealthy and these beautiful women are about to become prisoners of war. Everything that they treasure and find beautiful is going to be taken away. And then he moves in verses 25 and 26, and he carries the metaphor to apply it to Jerusalem at large. That Jerusalem's haughtiness, just like these women, will give way to lament. Her wantonness is going to give way to mourning. And she's going to go from tinkling with her feet to, end of verse 26, sitting on the ground. And that because of the war-torn man shortage that you see there in verse 25, these women who were once provocative and alluring and the talk of the town are going to be begging any man in chapter 4, verse 1, to take an interest in them. Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who takes things away. But why? Why does he take things away? 
God takes things away in order to give us more of himself. That God will never be to us a mighty rock and a strong tower as long as we find our security and our stability in worldly things. And God loves you too much to allow you to persevere in finding your stability in worldly things. He would be an unloving father to let you put all of your hope and stability in things that are not worthy of your hope. So he'll take them away if he has to. God will not be beautiful to us as long as we're obsessed with what the world thinks is beautiful. No, God takes things away to create something better. That is the good news of verses 2 through 6 in chapter 4, which serves as a bookends. Beginning of verse 2, we see the new Jerusalem, and now we see chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, operating as bookends on the other end of what God is doing. And Isaiah does this all throughout. You might be under the impression that Isaiah is all about judgment. Really, Isaiah is all about mercy. And that's what we see in these final few verses. Notice this. Glance back at chapter 3, verse 1. We see God is taking away. Then we see it again in verse 18. In that, Lord, in that day, the Lord will take away. Why does he take away? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 5. So that the Lord will create. God takes away so that he can create something new and better in its place. We have a hard time believing this, don't we? Laura Adams prayed this in our prayer of confession, that when the Lord takes away, we think that he's just being harsh and punitive against us. We question his goodness. But Isaiah says otherwise, and it's right here. That what motivates our good and glorious God to take things away from us, even good things, so that he would create something new and better in its place. Oh, just catch a whiff of this. Verse 2. We're going to see, first of all, that the glory of Christ is going to be our pride. It says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and, the, <clears throat> and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all of the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth by sh of shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. We see, first of all, in verse 2, that the glory of Christ is going to be our pride. That phrase, the branch of the Lord, as well as that phrase, the fruit of the Lord, those are all messianic metaphors. Metaphors for the coming Messiah. You can look also at Isaiah 11, talks once again about the branch. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what he's saying is that in that day, God's chosen people are going to be obsessed with the glory and the beauty of Christ. That is going to be our obsession. That there will be no rival agendas. There will be no pet causes. There will be no more swollen egos. All of the things that typically divide us will be gone. And our one obsession will be the glory of Christ will be the beauty of our Savior. 
I love how one sister put it. We want to be obsessed today with the things that we'll be obsessed with four trillion years from now. And that's exactly what we see here. That the people of God, the survivors, the the chosen elect by God's grace, oh, their pride will not be in their tinkling ankles anymore. Their pride will not be in their own leadership or their own, oh no, their pride will be in Christ alone. And the glory of Christ will be our pride for no less than two reasons. He is our pride, first of all, in verses three and four, because he cleanses us. Look at this. That every one of the survivors, all those who have been recorded for life, will be called holy. How will sinners be called holy? Verse 4, because the Lord will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion and will cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. That in that day, all who are brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be made holy in Christ. That our filth will be washed away. We will be cleansed just as God promised in the opening chapter of Isaiah. That though your sins are like scarlet, oh, they're going to be white as snow. And even though they are red like crimson, like blood stains, they will become like wool. Oh, but brothers and sisters, lest you think that the forgiveness of sins is the end and the goal of the gospel, Isaiah does not end there. Forgiveness of sins isn't the end of the gospel. It is the means to an even greater end, the ultimate goal of the gospel. That is that Christ cleanses us so that in verses 5 and 6, he can dwell with us. That we would be his people and we and he would be our God. That all of God's covenant promises made through the ages find their yes and amen in Christ and they will be consummated at his return in the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to that day when we will behold him face to face. And we're going to need a sun. We're not going to need moon because the glory of Christ is going to illumine everything. That's what we look forward to. And look at what he says in verse 5, that the Lord will create. He's taking away. He's taking away to create something new. What is he creating? He will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. It's bringing to mind the cloud and the fire of God's gracious leading of Israel during the days of the Exodus. That just as the pillar of cloud and fire led Israel every step of the way, so now in Christ, through the Spirit, God dwells in us and He guides us. We are new creation realities in our lives. And if you look at the second half of verse 5, over everything it says, there will be a canopy. That canopy is something that would be used at a wedding. That Christ is not just going to dwell with his people, but he's going to dwell with his people in such a way that there will be an intimacy unlike anything that we've ever known. The bridegroom will be with his bride. The promises will be fulfilled. The wedding feast has come and gone. And we are united to him forever to behold him face to face. 
that Christ will dwell intimately with us. But it doesn't even end there. Because just as God's pillar stood between Israel and Egypt as a wall of protection, well, here we see at the very end of verse 6 that He will be a refuge and a shelter to us. We will be safe and secure in Christ. Neither sword, nor famine, nor tribulation, nor peril, nor anything can separate us from the love of Christ. He is our rock. He is our shield. He is our fortress. He is our might. He is our hiding place. In Him is all of our security. Our enemies will not touch us. He will judge them, and we will win. That is the hope of the new Jerusalem. That's our hope, that he will be our source of unshakable stability. And our pride is now and forever will be in the beauty of Christ and not our own beauty. He will be the one that we long to exalt for all of eternity as we find ourselves filled with his glory. I'm, at this point, I'm just at a total loss for words. I don't know how to describe the incomprehensible God and the blessings of the gospel any better. And so I'm going to lean on Jonathan Edwards. And he says this, There, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, there, speaking of in that day, Isaiah 4.2, the glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love, And there, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love, in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment, and their hearts, as it were, will be deluged with love. That is Isaiah 4. God takes things away so that he can create something so much better in its place. Do you believe that? Friends, if that's true, brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in a trial or a difficulty and you see that God in his providence is taking things away, perhaps even good things, things that you've looked to for a long time for your own stability, whether it's a job or whether it's your bank account, whether it's marriage and kids, relationships, friendships, whether it's your own health, your own body, your own intellect. When those things are taken away by God's providence, don't doubt His goodness. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. He takes things away so that he might give us more of himself. Let's pray and let's enjoy the Lord's Supper together.